Dr. Jones, again we see there is no film you can style in which I cannot spoil. This is Diabolic, the show where four long-suffering friends and one newly suffering guest dissect films' most dastardly schemes, then compete to improve them. This week's movie is Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. So, peril pals, grab your whip and your fedora, leave your classroom unattended, and let's get diabolical. Welcome to this special episode. I'm your host, Craig, and it's my honour to introduce the panel of Peril, who will compete against each other as we each try to come up with the best alternative plan for the villain of the week before we vote to crown the most diabolical. As ever, I'm joined by regular panel members Adam, Ben and Gaz, and joining the panel of Peril today, author, legendary music journal, comedy titan, Talking Heads Nostalgia Show Stalwart, and Emmy Award-winning writer of Veep and the Thick of It, David Quantic. Hello, Craig. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Now, as a guest panel member, we're required to conduct a psychological test to determine just how diabolical you are. In a moment, Ben will ask you some questions, but first, this podcast was very almost for non-bonds, a show that would have focused only on the rogues gallery of 007. Now, as the author of The Blagger's Guide to Bond, I was wondering, who is your favourite Bond villain and why? Bond villain? Crikey. There are so many of them. I'd have to say Grace Jones because she sat on my lap. Mm. Um, Wow, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She's up there. I'm also kind of fond of Jules because I just imagine Ian Fleming coming back from the dead and he said he can come back to Earth for one day, but he's not allowed to choose the Bond movie he watches. And he watches, I think, is it Octopussy, where Jules meets Mrs. Jules? I think it's, uh, isn't uh, it Moonraker? Moonraker. Moonraker. It's Moonra- yeah. Moonraker is absolutely dismal. And I think just making Ian Fleming, <laughs> oh. all the racism and the sexism, sit through Moonraker, and everyone shouts, that's you, that is, this was, you wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> if you think of James Bond in the books in Casino Royale, then you think of Richard Keel with his metal teeth. Yeah. I love Richard Keel, I love Jaws, but I don't think Ian Fleming would have. <laughs> well, his books did get kind of increasingly campy as well. And I do remember reading somewhere once that he favoured Roger Moore, you know, after David Niven. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what he made of him. But we did an episode on Moonraker and we all kind of loved it. I think because we have Daniel Craig, grit, fatigue, you know, the kind of mm. the Jason Bourne direction that it took. And we wanted some camp fun. I can understand that. But yeah, that's solid choice. I think for me, my favourite would be a Scaramanga because my brother also has a superfluous third nipple, which I always found very amusing. <laughs> <laughs> That's exciting. And do you ever say to him, how titillating? <laughs> which is the only line I remember from that film. People don't like that film, do they? I don't really know why. I mean, it doesn't seem particularly worse than any of the others. No. No, absolutely not. I always enjoyed it. Yeah. He's got a Joe 90 gun made of bits of old tap. And there's an incredibly <laughs> pointless kung fu practice scene. Right. They just practice kung fu, and then James Bond beats them all. And Lulu did the theme music. Yes. Yeah, I like that that song. Yeah. Isn't the, the kung fu practice session an excuse to have some mute Bond girls on display for Roger Moore to throw around? I think that's what happened. Fair enough. Scene. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I always needed one of those. Lulu's probably the only person in the world who's had a hit single with two songs that begin with the words, The Man. Oh. Oh. What's the other one? The Man Who Sold the World. Oh, uh, yeah. I didn't know she'd done uh, Which also makes her a part of a very small club of Bond and Bowie people. Yeah. <laughs> this is where right. we're not quite as au fait with pop music and uh, pop culture as, <laughs> as you will be. <laughs> well, I used to be, but I mean, 
these days and feel like somebody going, oh, I'm a weapons expert and I know all about shields. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else got a favourite Bond villain? Well, I'll jump in because mine's the same as yours, actually, yeah. Craig. Scaramanga. I've got a soft spot for Christopher Lee. I think it was the, the powder blue suit that did it for me. <laughs> Very good. Baron Samadhi for me, just because he's a bit of an icon, isn't he? That whole movie mm. and manages to get away. So, Oh, he's good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's kind of a cool bond, that one, because it is black exploitation is the thing they're doing. Mm. But they yes. also managed to get in voodoo and stuff, which yeah. you didn't yeah. really get with kind of across 110th Street and films like that. No. <laughs> uh, Baron Samadhi's great. Yeah, even the Bond music in that film, like the incidental music feels kind of like black exploitation stuff. It's like bordering on shaft kind of theme music creeping in there. Little uh, weird guitar riffs and stuff. I think it's probably, you could say it was a kick up the arse for John Barry because he'd been doing yeah. it for almost 10 years. You've got yeah. Beetle Bond, yeah. incredible crossover of Wings and that. I think it's yeah. one of those films that they really wanted it to be good in the normal meaning of the sense. They actually, uh, they were actually wanted Thelma Houston to sing the "Live and Let Die" in the movie. You know where they have a band in the movie. Oh wow! Cubby Broccoli wanted her to sing it, but George Martin got the wrong end of the stick because he said, "I want Thelma Houston to sing the song." After he got the demo from Wings, and he said, "No, no, 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 no. It's got to be Paul McCartney. It's got to be Paul McCartney." And he argued, argued with it, and then, of course, years later, it turns out. He had the wrong end of the stick. He just wanted the band in in the film to be Thelma Houston. Yeah. Such a shame. Yeah, I mean, I love I love Wings, but I would have loved to have heard that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Gaz, did you have a, a favourite Bond villain? Probably not. Well, I'm I'm not as much of a Bond <laughs> fan as the rest of the panel of peril, as, no. as we've mentioned many times. Are you a Bond villain? Is this why? <laughs> <laughs> going, no, I don't. I don't really care for James Bond. My enemy, I will kill him. <laughs> He's the closest to it we've got, I think. I'm just going to say Le Chief from Casino Royale. Mm-hmm. Due to his flaws, yeah. how, how pathetic he is at times. Played by Mads Mikkelsen, of course, the villain in, in this week's film, Dial of mm-hmm. Destiny, who, who shares a lot of the same pathetic characteristics. Mads Mikkelsen playing his character. <laughs> yeah. What do you want me to do? Do you want me to be jolly or just look a bit annoyed about things? Maybe say something a bit racist and stab an underling. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. It's a shame he's also a climate <laughs> science denier, but we probably shouldn't start talking yeah, about that. Of course he is. Yeah. <laughs> That's a rabbit hole that I do not want to go down today. The thing is, no one expects scientists to be good at acting. But for some reason, everyone goes, what do you think about science? Man who pretends to be somebody else. <laughs> So this is the part of the show where we ask our guests some scientifically determined questions to find out how diabolical they are. David, like a Rorschach test, please answer honestly and with the first thing that pops into your head. Okay. Dennis the Menace or Roger the Dodger? I think Roger, because everything about him from his name to his look with the slicked back hair and the clothes, he's going to end up being a pimp. Or a gigolo. <laughs> He's really got that kind of the bloke who hangs around 1930s hotels looking for lonely spinsters to dance with. Yeah, there's something that appeals to me about that. Dennis the Menace was the kid who used to beat me up at school. So, you know, sod him. <laughs> I've never thought that about Roger before, but now I'll never be able to unthink it. He is. I've, I've got real sympathy with Roger. He's cunning and twisted and slimy. And mm. in a fight, he would run away. Yeah. <laughs> but you know he's going to be all right in life. He'll find a way. Well, I hope so. He always got his comeuppance, didn't he? I remember one that really stuck in my mind is where he tricked two street vendors, one out of hot tomato soup and one out of cold ice cream, and he ate them together and he got a stomachache. And I always thought that was a, a bit of a weird moral lesson for a kid's comic, but it's always stuck with me. <laughs> uh, imposed morality. He probably yeah. marries... I think he probably marries Minnie the Minx. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> They're probably very happy together. Or pimps for her, perhaps. Oh, God. Well, they, <laughs> I wish I hadn't said that now. A whole stable <laughs> of female, you know, not just female, probably Lord Snooty and his friends. Some weird yeah. kind of Alistair Crowley type <laughs> mansion. <laughs> Malcolm Tucker or Selena Myers? Oh, yes. I have written for them both. So I like Selena the best because she's just such a loser. <laughs> Malcolm Tucker gets his comeuppance in the end, but you know that he'll just mm. end up being on Twitter and getting asked on talk shows. 
Selena Meyer doesn't know that she's crap. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> she has no she did Malcolm Tucker's got self-awareness. Selena Meyer doesn't have self-awareness. Yeah. So yeah, I kind of sympathize with that. Selena Meyer always reminds me of the thick of it character, actually Nicola Murray, played by Rebecca Fromm. Mm, yeah. Who, yes. Because she has a great moment where she's absolutely making a bollocks of everything. And she suddenly stops and goes, this is why nobody likes me, isn't it? <laughs> and it's such a brilliant moment of self-realization. But Selena will never have that. Yeah. Baron Greenback or Rob Brydon? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I want to go for Rob because this is my showbiz story. He does an impression of me. Would you like to hear it? Yes. Go on then. <laughs> this is Rob Brydon's impression of me. Or <laughs> <laughs> he's nailed it. Well observed. <laughs> yeah, it's just like me. It was Baron Green. I love Baron Greenback, and he's got a mm. daughter. You know, so he's yeah. a kind family man in a lot of ways, even though his daughter's appalling. And he has the most stereotypical assistant of all time. <laughs> The apparently Italian crow, <laughs> whose name escapes me. But, yeah, I think there's something deeply sinister about Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I used to know Rob Bryden when he was like a, a rep actor at Radio 4 when they did oh wow. they did topical shows with sketches in, and he would be, it's like, oh, Prime Minister, come in. It's like, yes, mm. yeah, he's great, but sinister. Yeah. I think we're all big fans, being from Wales. Of course. He's definitely Welsh, Rob. <laughs> oh, yes. What did you think of his turn as the older, kind of sleazier Ken in, in Barbie? Fantastic. Just really <laughs> quite. Because I knew he was in the film because I'd seen pictures of him. But it, me and my wife just literally shouted, it's Rob, as everyone in the world did. Even yeah. people who don't know who he is. <laughs> even people in Texas going, it's Rob Bryden. <laughs> I know I did. <laughs> I was once at a house party with some people staying in Edinburgh for an Edinburgh show. And we all got very drunk and danced all night. And Rob, who doesn't drink, came out of his room like a mum. And he was like, what do you think you're doing? I'm trying to get to sleep. And then literally someone put on Tom Jones and he started dancing. And he danced the night away. Greg's vegan or meat sweeping sausage roll? Good question. Which is the most diabolical? Exactly. Well, I think I've had a Greg's vegan and it was all right. Yeah. I've had a lot of meat sweepings. I'd say they're more evil because the Greg's vegan sausage roll does not pose as something else. It says sausage in its name, but it admits by the word vegan that it's not ve that it's not really sausage. Whereas yeah. the meat sweeping sausage roll does not advertise itself as old bits of beef and scrotum. <laughs> so yeah, the villain there is definitely meat sweepings. <laughs> I don't have any anecdotes about sausage rolls. Sorry, or Greg's, <laughs> or Greg's. No, all those I did. For a brief while, when it was almost funny, have a Greg sweatshirt. And I yeah. once had to go into Greg's wearing it, and I felt <laughs> so bad. Like I was just taking the piss out of the staff. But I was also secretly hoping they might ask me to help. If you could steal any writing credit from history and get away with it, what would it be? Goodness, that's a good question. Yeah, because I feel like I've stolen a lot of writing credits anyway. A lot of shows I worked on, I only had one joke on. But thanks to the foolish laws of Britain, you get your name on them. I don't know. I mean, Faulty Towers, Porridge. Actually, no, America, Roseanne, or Frazier. Mm, yeah. Just absolute peak <laughs> okay. quality 80s American sitcoms. I think really think, oh, there's a lot of British good ones, but I really think the peak of sitcoms is the 1980s American sitcom. So any of those. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, fostered great talents such as uh, Joss Whedon and Norm MacDonald on Roseanne. Oh. I'm not sure about this Frasier reboot. I, I'm, I hope it's good because I love Frasier. But... Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. Yes. Okay, your life depends on erasing the entire back catalogue of one artist or band, who do you pick? Oh, can I pick everybody? <laughs> Almost everybody. I don't know. There's loads of people. I mean, it sounds a bit of an odd quandary, really, because it's like, I'd love to erase the back catalogue of an artist. It's not like that horrible puzzle with the man in China, you know, where you get a million quid just for killing one man. Right. No downside. I mean, there's so many. 
<laughs> I mean, ELO comes to mind just because their back catalogue is basically the Beatles Blue album. So, <laughs> yeah, that might be one. Poor Jeff Lynn. <laughs> Jeff Lynn. His entire career is based on standing next to someone else. <laughs> He's like the Matthew Corbett of rock. <laughs> and finally, on a scale of one to ten, how delighted were you with the controversy around the Brass Eye Peter Geddon episode? Oh, definitely 10. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. It <laughs> was a great deal of fun because um, I had my, me and my right partner, Jane Bussman, we had our addresses printed in the news of the world. And <laughs> yeah, wow. that was exciting. And the best bit was oh. we were referred to as the creators of Brass Eye because I wasn't <laughs> famous. So anytime I got quoted, I was like, I actually got an email from Chris saying, how are you, O creator of Brass Eye? <laughs> I think he was a bit pissed off, actually. Oh. No, I loved it. It was really exciting to be in that program. I'll always defend it, even the dodgy jokes. But it was more, it was the peak. Mm. Yeah. Did, did mm. you write the Quasar of Spaz wrong cock joke? <laughs> <laughs> no. Again, me and Jane got a credit for writing... The only I thought I had one joke in it, which was the concept of a thousand paedophile island, but Jane thought it was her <laughs> joke. <laughs> so I I do know one writer whose name I won't mention because he's now so controversial, but Chris told me that apparently he mm. basically said, I don't want anything to do with this show. You can't get me to work on it. Okay. So it was that scary. But no. It was just, yeah, we'd done the rest of Brass Eye, and Chris is like, I'm gonna do paedophilia. Okay. Sounds like a plan. What took you so long? <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> it's very well done. Yeah. Yeah, I just remember the media did no, not get it no. at all. It was a show about the pornography of the media. Mm -hmm. There were all these shows on at the time that were like, here comes the paedophile. It was like, basically, you're exploiting paedophilia and trying mm -hmm. to make it sexy. So that's what the show was about. Yeah. And, and also getting celebrities who will just say anything yeah, if they yeah. think they're doing it for exactly. a good cause. I think that was a great feature of Brassai. Yeah. You know, the, the, I'm talking nonsense. If you're watching it, Bernard Manning absolutely knows that he's being set up. You can tell from the... He either doesn't give a fuck about charity at all, but he yeah. clearly thinks he's just... I don't. He doesn't know what's going on, but he's enjoying it. Yeah. <laughs> It's a fucking disgrace. <laughs> Jane Busman was the one who said that cake should be the size of a cake. <laughs> oh. said, There's this drug called cake. And Jane said, and it should be that big, like a cake. That's genius. Amazing. <laughs> there are just so many great moments throughout that series. Yeah. It's one of the deep, it's still, still on physical copy. I've still got it and I still watch it every year or so. It's just timeless. I'm very, very proud to be slightly involved with that show. Yeah. And everyone thinks I wrote so it, so it's be. even better. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I've totted up all the answers there, and it seems you are pretty diabolical. So I'm going to give you an eight floret broccoli rating. Thank you very much. That's a lot of florets and a lot of broccoli. <laughs> yeah. Just for comparison, Goldfinger, he got four florets. Mm. So you probably double the uh, diabolical level of. Auric Goldfinger. That is pretty impressive. Yeah. I am very happy to, with that. Thank you, Ben. Bit of a holdover from uh, being Bond, of course, the old cubby broccoli. At least I think so. I think that's why he chose broccoli. We don't yeah. go into it too deeply. No. no. <laughs> it's probably best not to ask too many questions at this point. <laughs> <laughs> As our special guest, yours was the choice of film, and you chose Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, the fifth and latest and reputedly final instalment in the popular franchise and the first to be made without credits for regular director and writer team Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. In its reluctant hero Indy is tasked with preventing Nazi astrophysicist Jürgen Fuller, aka Dr. Schmidt, from obtaining the titular MacGuffin, an artifact that once belonged to Archimedes that allows its user to navigate fissures in time which the baddie plans to use to alter the course of the Second World War. Alas, Schmidt and Jones proved to be divisive among critics and cinema goers. But what did we make of it? David, what did you think of uh, Indian Jones and Dial Destiny? I really loved it. Yeah. I'd read not any reviews, but I'd read the comments on social media and all that kind of thing and just thought, I'll just give it a go. Mm -hmm. So I downloaded it and I'd seen all the films and I thought Crystal Skull was 
think I said somewhere, it was like when a band get back together in the 90s mm. and yeah. they all look terrible and the original singer's <laughs> dead, so they get his cousin in and they try too hard. <laughs> um, I hated the Crystal Skull. So mm, I had yeah. really, really no expectations and I really loved it. It wasn't overdone in the retro stuff. Yeah. There weren't too many references like Doctor Who that you had to get a flipping notepad and go, oh, actually, that's a famous line from this. It wasn't stuffed with former stars. I thought it was really well done. People complaining about the supernatural element. They're like, have you not seen an Indiana Jones (laughs) film? They're all about pixies. (laughs) Every single one of them is about magic. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was great. It was really moving. Harrison Ford was allowed to be dignified and kind of self-effacing. Phoebe Waller-Bridge was really good. She was not annoying, no No. more annoying than the character was. It was a really good story. It was a balmy ending, but they're all balmy endings. (laughs) So I thought it was really great. I had to take my hat off for that ending because it was gutsy as well. You could worry about doing something like that, but bringing the archaeologist into history and letting him experience it, I thought was kind of romantic. Yeah. I love the recreation of the where does it hurt kiss scene uh, a lot of people have said that that turned them right off but ah, i can't understand that i thought that was perfect. brilliant lovely nostalgia so well and as for phoebe waller bridge I, mean, I think she's a perfect you know she looks kind of like a, a fictionalized amelia Earhart type and <laughs> for me yeah her performance was brilliant and i thought she was a great addition i totally agree that ending was the brave choice mm. actually because it would have been so easy to have stopped it just before he got through the fissure right you know, you could have had Indy stopping them getting exactly. through. That's what I all. thought they were going but, to do. Um, yeah. yeah, so I thought that was quite brave. You know, of a thing about the five act structure. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a thing that if you got five acts in a film, and if you stop a film in the middle of Act Three, at that moment, it's like a party trick. The film will tell you what it's about. Yeah. So in in the film Yesterday by Richard Curtis and that the middle scene is the hero talking to his girlfriend who wants him to stay and he wants to go to LA and be a songwriter. That's what the film's really about. Right. And Indiana Jones, if you stop it in the middle, it's the scene where he suddenly says to Phoebe Waller-Bridge, what, or she says it, sorry, what would you do if you could go back in time? Mm. And that's what the film is about. Right. And he's like, oh, yeah. you know, I'd tell my son not to do this. Yeah. And it's brilliant because that's what happens. That's his dilemma. Mm. You know, He yeah. wants to stay. He's in his kind of heaven. He wants to cut himself off from humanity, go back in time, live in a fantasy. And she says, no, come back to the real world. You know, what yeah. he, there's a thing in writing, what you need versus what you yeah. want. This is what yeah. he wants, but it's not what he needs. It's absolutely perfect, the ending. That could have been a danger for the film writers as well, is they could have fallen into that trap of, as you say, they quite handily avoid the nostalgia traps. Uh, which they could have lent on completely. And it's, it's kind of similar, you know, do you want to live in the past and forget and or and ignore the the challenges that you've got ahead of you? And I think they rose to it and came up with something that felt really fresh to me. And the other thing as well, in Crystal Skull, you said Harrison Ford gets to carry himself with dignity in this, and they made so many allusions to his age in Crystal Skull and mm, the running yeah. gag. And in this, yeah. there's one maybe, and it's kind of, it's accepted that he's Indiana Jones. He's, you know, it doesn't matter if he's 80 years old. It's great. The first, pretty much the first time you see him, he's almost naked. And it's yeah. like, yeah, there we go. Deal with it. Yeah. yeah it's grumpiest as well, screaming at his neighbours. Yeah. Oh, he's so grumpy. He's so, he's so funny <laughs> when he's grumpy. He's he's hilarious, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's so cute, Harrison Ford. He's got that lovely wonky smile. But yeah, yeah when he's grumpy, he's like, <laughs> but yeah, at the very end of the film, they showed him as weak and defeated, and that was really brave of him yeah. as an actor to do that. Yeah, he really sells that scene. How about you, Adam? Well, I was going to say the same as pretty much as uh, David. I went in with zero expectations. I didn't like Crystal Skull, and I was like sat there. And I thought, come on, let's get through this, Adam. Let's get through it. And I fucking loved it. It was brilliant. I like Crystal Skull. Yeah, but I agree with, was it you, Ben, that said about his age, they focused on his age. Um, somebody said about his age. It was, I think yeah, it was and they did, and that's it. Yeah. And that's and I, and I that well, that's my lasting memory of it. And then I didn't like the aliens and shit like that. And, and I thought, here yeah. we go again, here we go again. And then when it opened, and I knew there was some CGI wizardry with his face and stuff, and I heard, I've seen an interview with him talking about they mapped 
they mapped him. And I was like, okay, okay. It started off and I thought, this is really good, but I'll, I'm still on the fence about it all. And then it got to, I've got it here, an hour, about an hour and 10 minutes. And I just thought, I'm really starting to enjoy this. Mm. <laughs> and then it was just the stuff for like the diving. Yeah. Uh, it was just everything. It was just, and I, I just, it's just like a tick box indie film. Yeah, got this. Got the whip. Got got the shooting. Uh, got the got the bugs and stuff. Yeah, that's uh, Temple of Doom. Yeah. Got the methane and stuff in in a in a darkened tunnel. That's Last Crusade with the petrol. Uh, and I was just like, fucking hell, what a film! What a film! Yeah, yeah. Like I said before, it was a, a bit of a great hits, but there were enough kind of fresh takes on it, even yeah. with the eels rather than the yeah. snakes. Yeah, I think there's it just yeah. had some really nice little tweaks to it to make it feel fresh. Yeah. Yeah, little twist there. I'd say for me, the only issue I had with it is that there's a lot of great stunt work, but some of it's sort of undone by the amount and at times the quality of the CG. Mm. So you never really feel that there's any real danger, which you used to with the older films. Yeah, definitely. The 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 stunt work in the old films, Vic Armstrong, I think he's called, is Mm. is brilliant and, and really you can feel it. And there are times in this when. The, the contortions of the digital face map don't, don't quite they, they're uncanny aren't they but exactly but you know yeah spend your disbelief for a guy who can survive a nuclear explosion in a fridge then i kind of i let all that go let it wash over me <laughs> <laughs> well uh what did we think about uh mads mickelson in this role do we think that he's a, a good villain yeah, I, I really liked him because he had that kind of irritated quality. It was as though, you know, the desire to rid, to bring fascism to the world and to rid the world of democracy and diversity was basically because he just wanted everyone to shut up. <laughs> he just seemed annoyed by it. He was like, oh, God, here comes someone else. Oh, yeah. democracy. <laughs> oh, God. Since he wants to go back to Rome, he wanted to go back to kill Hitler because he just found Hitler annoying. <laughs> oh, that wanker. Why won't everyone just leave me alone? No, he was really good. I thought that was a really interesting dynamic yeah. for him to be a Nazi who hates mm. Hitler. Yeah, that was really clever. And of course, there is the kind of, oh, Hitler, you know, you need Strasser, whoever he was. You need a different kind of better Nazi or worse Nazi mm. and all that kind of thing. And that line was a bit thrown away. It's like, what, what? We're going to a fisher in time. You're going to do what? Kill Hitler. What? Did you, I thought you said kill Hitler. I did. Why you could, could you not have mentioned this before? We could have had a chat about it. Yeah. All yeah. this stuff. It's a, it was a bizarre plan. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, it's like, you imagine the list of Nazi plans. You know, it's probably at the back. It says kill Hitler's quite in the middle of the book with a drawing of Hitler being hanged with his tongue out. I like that he wasn't the most intelligent villain either. He he didn't seem on top of anything to do with the the dial of destiny, <laughs> the means to yeah. travel back in time. Just constantly surprised when he's given information mm. by Indy and uh, Hannah. Just oh really? Okay. <laughs> constantly sort of adjusting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she tricks him very easily with the riddle of where the dial yes. is. You know, Archimedes clues that he left. So yeah, he's uh, he's very out of his element, isn't he? Mm. Someone who spent, I don't know how long it is, 25 to 30 years planning this. Yeah. You imagine somebody going, tectonic plates. He's like, oh, no, I knew there was something. <laughs> I had it written, I knew it. Tectonic. <laughs> Why did I not think about that? The amount of times I've been undone by tectonic plates. <laughs> Has we learned nothing from the history of geology? No. <laughs> I think uh, as it transpires at the end, the dial was always set to the 212 BC date mm-hmm. and it was done intentionally by Archimedes in order mm-hmm. to bring help back to the siege of Syracuse so mm-hmm. I think yeah. that Indy was kind of uh, bluffing his way through a continental drift there it doesn't make sense that it would alter where a hole in time in the sky was anyway I don't think I'm not really familiar of, of with time fissures to be honest I'd say it makes sense perfect sense yeah <laughs> That was one part that I just thought, hey, I'll just accept that. <laughs> Move on. It was, I mean, it was worth it, Jojo, because Mads Mikkelsen, who's not exactly an expressive face actor, did some really good, oh, I've really fucked this up. I forgot the wife's <laughs> birthday faces. <laughs> it was really sinking dread that yeah. he had lost. And it was very satisfying because he'd been so smug throughout. Yeah. 
Does anybody have any favourite moments from Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny? The raiding of Archimedes' tomb is proper mm. classic Indiana Jones for me. Moving cobwebs puzzles. out the way, yeah, yeah, puzzles to open doors, water shoots leading down, yeah, bugs. Yeah. Having to make a torch out of a, a rag and a bit of oil that happens yeah. to be lying around. That's Indiana Jones for me. That That's the primary memory great, of yeah. my childhood watching yep. Indiana Jones. And yeah, it, it has to be in there to make it. Absolutely. There's loads of bits of nostalgia like that for the other films, isn't there? And my favourite bit was another one where he's, he gets he gets the whip out, whips mm. it everywhere, get back! And everybody pulls the pistols out and he ducks. And again, it's just like yeah, classic really. indie for me. I think my two favourite bits, for different reasons, are one, the big parade scene when he gets on a horse, because it's just like, they're going, yeah, we know it's 1968, you know, whatever, all these things are going on. Yeah. Indiana Jones is just going to get on a horse <laughs> and <Yeah>. ride off. <laughs> He's oblivious to the moon landing. <laughs> it's just brilliant. It's like, who, yeah, I mean, they're really making a point. Who, You know, the future is here, but there's yeah. Indiana Jones on a horse. And yeah. the second bit is really to do with my dislike of John Williams. Because I don't yeah. like John Williams's work. I, I don't know. like his themes. <laughs> and what I love is that if, he's like a dog. Every time he sees a vehicle in the film, he starts the Indiana Jones theme. Da, 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 da. There's a, you know, it's like Phoebe Waller-Bridge gets on the top top. Da, 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 it's off. Someone sees a bread van. Da, da, he's off. It's like no, John, not now, John. Every opportunity, a fly moves its leg. Here it comes. <laughs> Hold, John. Hold. Ben. Yeah, I think. It it feels a little bit like Indiana Jones' greatest hits yeah, at times. So there's is. a lot, that, you know, the train top fight, the fancy barbrawl, short round 2.0. But I'm going to go for one that's a little bit offbeat, and it's Toby Jones in that little German hat. <laughs> it does suit him. <laughs> I love it. It's amazing. If I were Toby Jones, I'd be wearing that everywhere. <laughs> My favorite sequence is the dive sequence, and it's mainly because Antonio Banderas, he's so great in this. He's like a Hergé character. Yeah. He's just such a classic sailor guy i think it's hilarious yeah. and i think he's so good Brilliant. if they yeah. were doing another one i would have preferred him not to get killed off because he's one of yeah. those guys that you'd like to see coming back yeah that was a bit annoying when they killed him off yeah i, I gasped yeah because yeah. i know you know it's like oh he wanted to be in it and he took a smaller part but it's like you don't get him in and kill him no yeah they should have killed mm. the pretend egyptian bloke from lord of the rings his time had come <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah seller He's the other climate science denier, but we won't get into that again. <laughs> uh, also, I like the fact that he's kind of, they don't say anything like he's from Egypt. He's just sort of goes, oh, Indy, here are my kids who are from Egypt. <laughs> I am a nondescript generic person who is not racially dubious because I am a neutral figure from nowhere land. <laughs> he's just a cameo for the sake of it. Isn't there was it? no need to bring him back. He walks on, he says, hello, and that's it. <laughs> I think he turned down the crystal skull because he was wasn't given enough to do. Right. I read that on Wikipedia, but in this, he had okay. he clearly reached his quota of lines. <laughs> yeah, I think he was only supposed to be in the wedding scene in Crystal Skull, which was a very brief scene. Hmm. But uh, yeah, it was such a pointless return for him. I, I didn't understand why he did that. It could have been Kihui Kwan who's having a bit of a comeback, and I think fans would have been more pleased to see him would have been nice that's the only thing missing from this movie is a little guest from him yeah definitely yeah yeah i mean i think that might have slightly overwhelmed it because it's died mm. down a bit but it was pretty much short round fever after everything everywhere mm. it was yeah it would have ended up being like short round the move short round <laughs> and the dial of destiny starring <laughs> indiana jones <laughs> where are we going yeah. today short round yeah, <laughs> I'd quite like to see that though. Maybe next time, next time around, <laughs> you probably will. Now that Harrison Ford will no no longer be with us acting wise, he says that we'll see. No, he can't live forever. Doesn't matter what he says. At some <laughs> point, he will not be able to do it. He can now that they've digitally mapped they've his digi fake yeah. young face. That's it. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, he's making five hundred Marvel films now. Well, one day they will just be AI movies and they will just be weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we offer up our own diabolical plans for your consideration, if you're new to the podcast and you're enjoying it, please like, rate, review and subscribe wherever you can. It helps us keep making these and keeps us from turning our hands to grave robbing. 
In Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, Dr. Foller's diabolical plan is to recover Archimedes' eponymous Antikythera mechanism and travel back in time to the beginnings of the Second World War to assassinate and usurp Adolf Hitler and lead Germany to victory. Ultimately, Foller's efforts are seemingly foiled by continental drift, meaning the dial steers him towards a fissure in time that leads back to the Siege of Syracuse in 212 BC and not to 1939 as he intended. But how did the Panel of Peril rate Foller's plan? Was it a diabolical concept and how well was it pulled off? And I think we've kind of covered this, but just to recap, David, what did you think of Foller's plan? It was a terrible plan. Yes. If you're going to bring the Nazis to power, <laughs> killing the chief Nazi. It's not like Nazism isn't like a philosophy. It's like right. something a mad bloke invented so that he could dress up and kill people. Right. You know, If you kill Karl Marx, you'll stop communism in some form. If you kill Hitler, yeah. you've just killed a bloke. It was a terrible yeah. plan in that respect. And yeah. you kill Hitler, then what happens? You take over the Nazis, you get Goering or Himmler to take over. Have they not seen the man in the high castle? Nazism without Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> This is the part of the show where the panel of peril compete for the title of Most Diabolical. We'll each vote for our favourite, and at the end, the person with the most votes will be crowned the winner of this special episode. First, let's hear from our special guest, David Quantic. My alternative plan is very simple. He's got this opportunity. He's got a flipping Heinkel bomber, I do believe. He's flying back in time with a bunch of German soldiers with guns. He's the world's top scientist. Has, he, has no one seen, read a Connecticut Yankee in the court of King Arthur? <laughs> He's introducing modern technology into a world that, didn't mind all this Greek fire stuff, if Archimedes yeah. could defeat the Romans, I'm pretty sure a platoon of Nazi soldiers with an aeroplane <laughs> could yeah. do worse. Basically, what I'm saying is he flies to Rome, takes over the Roman Empire, much more logical pursuit, and then conquers the world. And he doesn't have to worry about diversity and stuff like that because they're the Roman Empire. They're quite <laughs> Nazi already. And they're quite diverse. You know, they've got um, troops from, from all of the countries they've conquered and they're just, they're Roman That's now. true. I mean, you'd probably have to sort that out and make people unhappy again. Yeah. <laughs> and they are kind of pantheistic again, which I believe is not a very Nazi thing. No. All right, next, let's hear from Ben. Dr. Rudy Voller stands in line, clutching two oversized suitcases. He taps his foot. Why does check-in always take so long? Finally, he's called to the ticket counter. Ooh, the Maldives, says the smartly dressed staff. Just two bags, is it? Dr. Rudy Voller nods and places them on the conveyor. Ooh, this one feels empty, says the staff, lifting one of the cases above her head. Uh, For souvenirs replies Dr. Rudy Voller. Upon arrival at the Maldives airport, Dr. Rudy Voller collects his bags and steps outside. A Limburger grin spreads across his face faster than risque gossip at a coffee morning. It's everywhere. The object of his desires is quite literally everywhere. He hurriedly packs his empty suitcase full of exotic matter. From there, it's a relatively simple task to create a stable, traversable wormhole connecting the present with 1939. <laughs> <laughs> Once back in olden days Berlin. Just wave that on. Yeah, just, just gloss over that bit. <laughs> Once back in olden days Berlin, phase two of his plan kicks into action. Dr. Rudi Voller uses his standing among the Nazis to get close to Hitler's inner circle. He then shares just one nugget of tactical information that helps the senior leaders to a small but important victory. And as he ingratiates himself further and further, he shares more information that helps the Nazis campaign. When finally he's asked how he's doing it, he makes up some bullshit about harnessing Archimedean cycles to infallibly predict the future. He also throws in a few references to ancient Aryan mysticism and the lost city of Atlantis for, some, for good measure. With their fascination with the occult, the Nazis gobble this shit up. And soon Dr. Rudi Voller meets the Fuhrer himself and becomes his most trusted advisor. Once Dr. Rudy Voller's reputation as a vital cog in the Nazi machine is beyond refute, 
he announces with deep regret that his divinations have shown that Germany will lose the war and that Hitler will be responsible. Knowing by now that Dr. Rudi Voller is in fact the true brains behind the operation, the senior leaders execute Hitler and name Dr. Rudi Voller as their new Führer. Dr. Rudi Voller sits on his new throne and chuckles. Hindsight really is the best medicine, he says aloud to no one in particular. <laughs> so one question, who's Dr. Rudi Voller? I forgot what the guy's real name was and I wasn't going to check it, so <laughs> I just went with Rudi Voller. <laughs> was it Rudi Voller, a footballer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he was like an 80s, 90s footballer, wasn't he? Football, yeah. A midfielder. So what's in the Maldives? Exotic matter. <laughs> Why is it? In, is that because the, the Maldives is the most exotic place you can think of? Oh, they're very exotic. Have you seen the sea? Crystal clear. Exactly. Well, yeah. I can get pineapple chunks from my local supermarket, so that's exotic enough for me, fella. <laughs> I love the idea of building a wormhole out of pineapple chunks. <laughs> I'm more of a dried mango man myself. I looked into <laughs> how you can create a wormhole, and one of the theories that uh, my Ben Einstein came up with was that you use this <clears throat> un- unproven matter called exotic right. matter. And I thought, well, where would you find this matter? The most exotic place <laughs> on Earth, the Maldives. <laughs> Logic, my friend. Well, okay. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Adam. Can we hear your plan next? Time travel, eh? It's not exactly rocket science. (laughs) Or is it? As we see in the film, the USA has just landed on the moon. What an achievement! And they did so with the help of some rather unsavoury people, namely Nazis. (laughs) (laughs) former Nazi party member and SS Sturmbannführer Werner von Braun was flown out of Germany at the end of the war during Operation Paperclip to live unpunished in the United States von Braun was an integral part of the V2 rocket program in Peenemunde which rained down death and terror in Europe in the latter phases of the Second World War which killed 5,000 people in raids and approximately 10,000 slave workers from concentration camps he was key in helping the United States beat the Soviets to the moon. As Voller has already become involved with the equally insidious CIA, he finds locating and contacting Von Braun little trouble. With access to the most high-tech space travel technology available in those days, Von Braun is in perfect place to assist. Voller, with the help of the evil Von Braun, copy a gyroscopic pinpoint calculation navigation system that is used in the moon mission. That helps them to negate the continental shift that plagues Voller in the original plot, which lands them in deep poodoo. This time, with the course corrections provided with Von Braun's gizmo, Voller is able to correctly navigate space-time and return to 1939 to eliminate Hitler. And, I predict leaves a vacuum of power within the Nazi party that sees Germany rip itself apart in a bitter, narcissistic civil war among the Nazi hierarchy, thus delaying the war and allowing the Allies time to prepare for Germans' acts of aggression, saving millions of lives in the process. As someone once said, Von Braun aimed for the stars, but occasionally hit London. (laughs) That's interesting, but doesn't the end of your plan there it's not very diabolical is it if the allies are able to well he goes back and kills hitler but my i'm just predicting beyond that and saying... okay so his plan win his plan works but his outcome is terrible still yeah at that point hitler's the unifying figure so they and they're all clamoring to be hitler's best mate all the time aren't they uh, all the, the hierarchy so when he goes it's curtains for them basically for them all and then they just put, uh, tear each other apart. So he teams up with Werner von Braun and yeah. they use some of the science they've learned from yes. calculating the trajectory for, for basically landing on the moon. Correct. To land on the correct. Yeah, that's actually a really good idea. I was I thought maybe somebody else might say that. So I was a bit like, oh, is it going to be two of us with the same plan? No one was going to say that. The only, <laughs> the only thing, as I said, is that in the film, what it actually reveals later is that the uh, the Antikythera doesn't actually show you where 
anytime visitor anywhere is it literally is just a beacon for bringing some help back to that particular battle so Archimedes yeah. intentionally sets and he says like he will always come in here and he knows that because mm. he's the one who is going to program the dial to bring mm. somebody back there to help him time loop time loop indeed yeah oh the other thing as well yeah the fact that they bring the future tech back to the Roman Empire the plane that crashes you know at the start mm. they've got the spear of Longinus that pierced Christ and they say it's a fake because mm. it's made of an alloy that won't mm. exist it's made out of the plane isn't it that's what it is mm. uh, it's real question for you yeah. Adam would putting another Nazi in the mix would that be helpful would that cause a little bit of friction Nazi friction yeah fucking they love it don't they well really that's what they're there for isn't it all about the racism and super superpowers so you think they'd be they'd be bonded by their love of racist behavior i love racism do you love racism <laughs> yeah yeah i do i do oh, me too <laughs> let's work together oh darling your racism so hard today oh <laughs> so yeah they'd fucking love it it'd be like it'd, it'd be like meeting uh you know, like an old colleague from um, the Rotary Club that you haven't seen for you know for twenty years, you can't help but uh, want to play backgammon with them. I've never been to a Rotary Club. Oh, there you wouldn't know them, would you? <laughs> I don't like merry-go-rounds. I won't be going to a Rotary Club. Well, you just have to get off this crazy merry-go-round, then, won't you? And uh, cease with your questions. <laughs> that was the most Nazi line you've ever said. <laughs> cease with the questions. Cease lies. <laughs> <laughs> you will cease with these questions, Mr. Jones. <laughs> Let's hear from Gaz next. Voller knows that Hitler is the reason the Reich was toppled and so plans to eliminate him. Will he try to travel back to 1939 and assassinate Hitler? No. He may not be the brightest spark, but he knows that any scientific endeavour is subject to innumerable variables, and so simply accepts that he can travel back in time to who knows where. Also, assassinating Hitler's probably going to be well hard. Instead, he hires Adolf Hitler and Ava Braun lookalikes with open minds and supplies them with details of a photo shoot <laughs> to be conducted in a swank hotel room. Next, he steals Walt Disney's cryogenic chamber, pausing only to discard <laughs> the popsicled corpse of Uncle Walt down the nearest toilet. When the two halves of the Dial of Destiny are reunited, as in the film, Vola flies through the fissure, and upon seeing the Siege of Syracuse taking place, launches a capsule with the photographs in. Having the coordinates of Hitler's evil lair programmed in, it acts as a sort of high school time capsule, burying its way underground ready to be unearthed in roughly 2,000 years' time. Voller safely lands the plane and manages to get the cryogenic chamber to the cave of Dionysius, and once he's connected the everlasting battery that I definitely mentioned earlier, he freezes, <laughs> ready to emerge in 1939. Unfortunately, being a bit of a dunce, he set the timer wrong and re-emerges in 1940. Once defrosted and toweled off, Voller makes his way to Germany to find that Hitler has been executed by his own men. Why? Some photos were unearthed from a beeping capsule underground which contained photos of him being vigorously pegged by Ava Braun. Quite the no-no in Nazi Germany by all accounts. Voller then supplies the master race with the schematics and formula for the atom bomb and hurrah, the Nazis have won the war. <laughs> right, what the fuck happened there? <laughs> uh body dub i got body doubles cryo walt disney uh pegging yeah. <laughs> uh, you got the gist of it yeah so you've got it yeah you've got it yeah hitler's final words as well would also be uh it's like living here <laughs> i get it <laughs> batshit absolute batshit <laughs> batshit but very good i like it you can't argue with historical fact, Turner. No. <laughs> My question is, obviously, that siege of Syracuse is quite mm. famous. And I imagine there's been a, there was a lot of archaeological digging done in that area. What happens if those photos are unearthed before the time? The photos aren't in 
the the place that the siege takes place, they fly off to Germany. Oh, they just fly off to Germany. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's got a coordinates program. In. Imagine Krang's vehicle um, mm. that's like a big <laughs> tank with a drill on Setting the end. The drill. Drill. Yeah. So it flies off right. to Germany and burrows <laughs> underground, and it's got a timer set to start beeping right. to attract attention in 1939. Okay. Setting those for fucking hell. Makes mm. total sense. <laughs> Thank you. I'll bring us home with my plan. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Jürgen Foller stepped into the quantum leap accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself facing a mirror image that was not his own. Chaplin moustache, greasy side sweep, unmistakably the Fuhrer. Startling as it was to gaze into a mirror and see another man's face, his attention was quickly diverted by the sudden appearance of a brilliant white rectangle in his peripheral vision, from which emerged a US naval officer holding some kind of futuristic Lego device. A weapon? Foller span on Hitler's heels and drew his Walther PPK like a shit James Bond. Several years earlier, several decades in the future, Foller had encountered two scientists with the improbable names Gushy and Sam Beckett through his position in Operation Paperclip. Long having abandoned his search for Archimedes' dial, Foller's interest in time travel had reignited once more, and his scientific mind helped them launch Project Quantum Leap way ahead of schedule. <laughs> now, standing in the gents' toilets at the Burgerbrow Keller, he could not recall those events, or how he got here, or even who he was. He fired his gun at the US Navy man, but was shocked to see the bullet pass through him and into the wall. What are you doing, Schmidt? protested Al. It's me, <laughs> Al! You lucky I'm a hologram, only you can see or hear. Al? Schmidt? Memory started to return to Foller. The beer hall putsch. He knew now why he was here. To put wrong what once went right. Al smacked his screaming Lego calculator. Oh no! Ziggy says there's a 98% chance your brain is German cheesed from the leap. You mean... Swiss cheesed? No, I mean German cheesed. Foller perceived his mission was going to be a success. It's just quantum leap, isn't it, really? Yeah, he uh, he <laughs> uses the quantum leap accelerator to go into Hitler. So instead of killing Hitler, he becomes Hitler, which I think is a more elegant thing to do because he, he knows where Hitler went wrong. Mm. But Hitler also is a charismatic leader and he already has the favour of the Nazi party and the German people. Whereas for Foller to kill Hitler and then try and become the new Führer or, or put someone else in the place of the Führer is too much of a gamble. That, that might not, people might not accept a different Führer. I see. The beauty of Project Quantum Leap is that he leaps into the Hitler and just, you know, takes over his life and, and does things right. Tell me about the, the premise of Quantum Leap as you understand it. The premise of Quantum Leap <laughs> is that one can time travel within one's own lifetime. And in Quantum Leap, there's kind of a force guiding Sam to put right what once went wrong. There's also an evil Leaper. Is he choosing where he goes or? No, the force is guiding him. And the evil Leaper right. gets guided to, to undo what Sam has fixed. So there's always a force that guides the person. But in the context of this, the force that's guiding Voller <laughs> is the the force of Nazi power in the universe and its desire to oh, be, to fulfil itself. So it, it sends okay. him back to the right place. Oh, that's neat. That's very neat. And sorry, the first episode of Quantum Leap, when was that set? I forget. 1968, was it? doesn't matter when the first episode was set because it's you time travel within your own lifetime and Voller's lifetime. Yeah, it's Voller's lifetime. Yeah, but he jumps into a machine, right? Scott Bakula. So in Quantum Leap, the Quantum Leap Accelerator project is finished in the 80s. But I'm saying with Voller's right. expertise, if he meets Gushy, he can get the project finished in the 60s. Or it doesn't it doesn't have to be in the 60s, okay. actually. It could still be the 80s. Because what I said is... Because it's still in his lifetime. Okay, fair. Yeah, he's, he's abandoned his search for Archimedes' dial. So he... This doesn't have to happen in the 60s. This can happen in the 80s, long after he's not bothered meeting Indiana Jones. Fair. All right. Yes. You've covered all the bases there, so I'm, I'm very happy. 
<laughs> so there you go. We've had we've had David's Roman conquest. We've had Ben's Führer usurper. We've had Adam's NASA control center. Uh, we've had Gaz's pegging and, and cryogenic freezing. <laughs> and we've had, <laughs> had my quantum leap. Now it's time to vote. We'll each vote for our favorite. And then whoever has the most votes will be crowned the winner. So let's start with Ben. If you're ready, who did you vote for? I voted for David because it was the only one I could understand. <laughs> and Adam, you look keen. Who did you vote for? I voted for Gaz for the exact opposite reasons. okay and Gaz I voted for David uh, because his plan made the most sense to me within the context of the film that we all watched yes uh, much as I respect you all I've also voted for for David because you really can't argue with boot lickers (laughs) well the Roman Empire (laughs) is a much better prize than you know Nazi Germany and that's just a fact yeah. Yeah. So, and and David, uh, which of our terrible plans did you think was uh, the the most worthy? I did think about voting for myself, but um, it's against the rules. I voted for you, Craig. Because oh, thank you. Quantum Leap is nice. I do enjoy Quantum Leap. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much once again for joining us this week and for being our very first guest panel member. And now we'd like to give you the mic. Uh, so tell us where can our listeners enjoy more of your diabolical mind. In the time of Archimedes, I think. <laughs> no, I haven't got much going on at the moment, but you can follow me on Twitter at Quantic still and with a website that I put short stories on and events coming up, which is www.davidquantic.com, surprisingly enough. And I'm hoping to get more books published in the future. But at the moment, I'm just pottering along. So thank you so much for having me. It's been a very entertaining hour. Really enjoyed it. And I clearly don't get to talk to much people much these days because of the <laughs> enthusiasm I have for this format. So thanks again. It's a great show. And that wraps up this special episode with absolutely nobody wishing they could go back in time and undo anything. Thank you for listening. And if you want to live in the now, make sure you subscribe, smash that bell and leave us a review on the very platform on which you're currently listening. You can follow us on social media at Diabolical Pod and follow David at Quantic. Next time, we'll be back with a regular episode. But stay tuned for future guest appearances to see how they rank against our inaugural Diabolical Mind, David Quantic. Until then, remember... Everything will be all right in the end. And if it isn't all right, then it isn't the end. I was so pleased you agreed to do it. And uh, speaking of your books, I, I have two of them here. Thoroughly enjoyed Ricky's Hand and Night Train. Oh, thank you. You know, yeah, very kind. Uh, thank you. Some, some interesting parallels, uh, without wishing to spoil Ricky's Hand, with... Uh, with the film choice that you that you pick, mm. in, you know, in terms of time travel and uh, yeah, very good read. And also, before you came on, we were discussing uh, Book of Love, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah, me too. Oh, great! Thank you. Great premise. Did any of that? Um, uh, not the romance because you're a married man, but did you ever meet one of your? Are you saying there's no romance in marriage? No, <laughs> not with someone outside of your marriage. Is what I mean. Not oh, with no, the translator of your of your book. But was that inspired by anything in particular? No, I just went. I went for a drink with a man I knew who was a translator, and when he was talking, I just suddenly asked him if anybody had ever translated a book, mistranslated it so much that they radically changed the meaning. Because translation is a political tool, you know, and throughout the years, mm-hmm. people have translated things in different ways. To and then while he was talking, I just thought, well, this is a rom-com. What if you had an op- you know, a stereotypical uptight British person and a stereotypical Latina woman, and yeah. his book was really fucking boring, and her <laughs> translation was really sexy and exciting, like Fifty Shades of Grey almost. Yeah. And that just seemed really funny, and it was. Yeah, it was such a great concept. And we were just saying as well, Sam Claflin uh, is, is really good. He uh, played Oswald Mosley in Peaky Blinders. And, uh, That's right. Uh, yeah, it's quite quite a 
different role for him, this Ooh, one. He's not just the stereotypical uptight Brit. He may be the most uptight Brit character I've ever seen in a, in a rom-com. <laughs> yeah, he's also Mycroft Holmes in um, the Enola Holmes movie. So he definitely specialises in people with a pickle up their arse, as the Americans yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I, I would highly recommend that as well. Well, thank you. I really liked it. Uh, I don't think we need to recommend everything else you've been involved in because it's, uh, you know. No, stop recommending things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just think everybody, if if they haven't seen it already, they probably won't won't be listening to this. <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> <laughs>